I read a fascinating article in the newspaper last Saturday, um, which said that 34% of a YouGov poll of uh, 6,200 adults uh, said that their parents had a favourite child when they were growing up. And 81% of those people thought that their sibling was the favoured one. And of the 3,500 parents who took part in the survey, 10% of them admitted that they had a favourite child. And almost half of them, 49%, favoured their youngest child. It's quite disheartening for me as, as an oldest child. Uh, although the worst deal is if you're a middle child, only 22% favoured a middle child. It's awful, isn't it? And we rightly rile against the idea of favouritism in the family, in the school place, in the workplace, in the church. And yet, I wonder whether we're a little more prone to favouritism than we would like to admit. I wonder whether we're a little more prone to favouritism than we would like to admit. I take it from the strong terms in which Paul addresses Timothy in verse 21 of our passage, that we should at least consider as we look at this passage tonight, whether partiality runs a little deeper in ourselves, in our church, in our culture, than we might think. And not just partiality in our parenting, or in our work with children, junior church, creche, but partiality in our attitudes to everyone in church. And particularly in this passage, partiality in our attitudes towards our leaders. I certainly know in the past that you know, I'd be much quicker to follow the advice of one of the leaders in my church than another. Or if one leader recommended a book or talk or video, I'd look it up straight away. If another did, I might not bother. Or, you know, there's one home group that everyone really wants to be in. Another, maybe not so much. There's that one leader who can do almost nothing wrong in your eyes. And another who can do almost nothing right. Or it might just be me. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not the way to regard all elders, all leaders as equal in every way, and not acknowledge differences in godliness, in gifting, in experience. You know, I'm sure um, that Dave would be quick to point you to Andrew if you're walking with an elderly relative through their final weeks. I'm sure that Charlie would happily point you to Dan if you wanted a recommendation of a book to listen to or a sermon series to listen to. But I think if we're to hear what God has to say to us this evening, we must ask whether we're always as impartial and as godly in our instincts when it comes to how we view our leaders as we'd like to think we are. Uh, the section of the letter we're looking at this evening uh, is part of a wider section from uh, 5 verse 1 through to 6 verse 2. And it's sort of a practical outworking of uh, some of the instructions that Paul's given to Timothy um, regarding how the church uh, in 3 verse 15 uh, how the church should conduct themselves in God's household uh, as the family of God. Um, Dan showed us last week in the first couple of verses of chapter 5. Last week we had this quite extended section on um, how widows were to be treated in verses 3 to 16. And then Paul moves on to deal with two other groups, um, elders in verses 17 to 25, and slaves more briefly in um, 6 verses 1 and 2. And his basic command for all three groups is to honour. Uh, in verse 3, he says that widows in genuine need should be given proper recognition, should be honoured. In verse 17, he exhorts that effective elders should be given double honour. And over the page 6, verse 2, slaves should consider their masters worthy of full respect. 
They should honour them. So these leaders are to be honoured. But they're to be honoured without impartiality or favouritism. We'll see as we study the passage in a little more depth. They're to be honoured, but without impartiality or favouritism. So we've got two points. First will be a bit lengthier, second will be quite short. Um, the first one, honour your elders without showing favouritism. 5 verses 17 to 25. Honour your elders without showing favouritism. And now we know very little for sure of the context of these commands. But I think we can fairly safely assume that there was probably some dishonouring of elders going on in the Ephesian church if Paul felt the need to say this to Timothy. And probably a fair bit of nepotism and prejudice. You know, you were my back, I were yours, turning a blind eye, he's in this camp, he's in this camp, um, in the way that the elders were regarded. But having said that, um, in light of the false teaching that Paul mentions in the letter, uh, right at the beginning, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through to 3, there were probably some very good reasons why not all of the current Ephesian elders were being honoured. In fact, it looks like Paul's actually dismissed some men from positions of leadership in the church uh, in chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. So Paul isn't stating that all elders must be honoured blindly and equally without question. I think rather what he's addressing, particularly in light of his instructions in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, to appoint new overseers, I think what he's addressing is that there's this almost toxic culture that's grown up in the church of distrusting leaders or preferring certain leaders over others, but not for the right reasons. And so his statement here is clear. Verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Elders are to be honoured, says Paul. They're to be honoured. Which elders? Well, those who direct the affairs of the church well. That's a kind of sort of management term, ruling, managing, presiding, leading. And so the Ephesian church are not just to honour, but to doubly honour those who rule well, those who fulfil public roles in the church effectively, and make good decisions, who organise and administer well, who steward the church's resources effectively and care for its members well. Doubly honour these men, Timothy, and especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Um, there's some debate as to whether the especially here is um, for distinction. So there are some elders who um, just direct, and there are other elders who direct and also preach and teach, or, or whether it's for emphasis. What particularly makes elders worthy of honour out of all their duties is that they preach and teach. Um, but either way, it's clear that Paul sees preaching and teaching as key. And those elders who are doing it are worthy of particularly high honour. Why? Well, verse 18. For scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Quotes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and Luke 10, verse 7. Neither exactly noble images, I have to say, Elders like oxes, like farmhands. Um, but just as an ox should be allowed to eat some of the grain as it works, and just as a labourer ought to be paid after a day on the construction site or on the farm, so an elder should be honoured. And then the million dollar question, what was the honour that Paul had in mind here? Well, he doesn't spell it out in this passage, 
I think we can say at the very least, respect, thanks, public recognition for their role. And I think there's good evidence from Paul's writing elsewhere, from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 to 14, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, from Galatians 6, verse 6, that Paul probably has financial honour in mind, even if, um, as Dan said this morning, he didn't claim it for himself particularly. Perhaps something as formal as a salary, perhaps less formal financial support. We can't be sure. There's sort of all this talk of honouring. It almost takes you back as you read it. To sort of a golden era in Britain's past. An era of respect, of authority, of trust, unquestioning trust in professionals, vicars, doctors, teachers, lawyers. An era when sort of the pastor was lauded as um, someone, you know, not quite like the rest of us, unknowable, living on a higher plane, with a higher calling. Even just the word, honour, feels quite outdated. Um, it's not a word that describes how people relate to each other today. You know, respect, maybe, but, but honour? Kind of reeks of undeserved privilege and inappropriate deference. It reminds you of the royal family, maybe. And that attitude, that, I think, assumption of dishonour can, can slip into church life. And we can almost look down on our leaders, on people in Christian ministry and work. What does the pastor know of my life, of my world, we think? What do these leaders, these Christian workers know of, of the challenges I face? The daily grind, the job you hate, the difficult marriage, the people who hate Christ around you, the suffering that you face, exhausted, downtrodden, defeated. What do they know in their Christian bubble? Why should I listen to them? Certainly questions I've, uh, I've thought to myself before. But I think from here, we need to reclaim in the church, the concept of honour, of honouring our leaders. Not blind, unconsidered, undeserved honour. We'll see more about that, the dangers of that later. But a genuine honouring of leaders who serve us faithfully. How do we do that? I have two answers, I think. First, give them respect, public recognition and thanks. I think in many ways we um, already do this at Magdalene Road. Um, acknowledge their role, what it is that they do. Uh, thank them privately and publicly. Uh, listen to them, take them seriously. Submit to them as appropriate. When you speak of them, speak considerately, highly. Be quick to show graciousness and compassion and slow to judge. Pray for them. Um, and as part of this, uh, I wonder whether, uh, an issue for MRC, whether we need to have more of a culture of um, aspiration to leadership. Um, here's a trustworthy saying. Paul says in 3 verse 1, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. It's not to be regarded lightly, we see from the criteria in 3 verses 1 to 7, but, but, Paul, but Paul calls it a noble task, to desire to be a leader, an elder. And of course, um, eldership, leadership, Christian ministry or work won't be for everyone. And we must rightly ask questions about personal godliness, character, gifting, capacity. But nevertheless, I wonder whether part of honouring our leaders is, um, as, a cult, as a church, fostering more of a culture of uh, aspiring to leadership, rather than sort of letting others take the lead and uh, shoulder the burden and the responsibility. It's um, something we've been chatting a lot about elders over the last few months. 
So how do we better honour our leaders? Uh, one, give them respect, public recognition and thanks. And two, honour them financially. Um, again, I think MRCs are much healthier than many churches in this respect. And I'm aware that I say this, being in the receipt of substantial support from the church as a whole and people in the room. Um, but I, I don't think we can do justice to this passage um, without addressing it. Um, churches must consider their budgets and review them regularly. Um, and I don't claim to bring any answers. And I certainly don't think the answer is just throw more money at your staff team. Uh, but some questions uh, that we could consider. Um, what proportion of our budget do and should we spend on staff? Do we actually know as a church? Um, does the financial support we offer to staff um, reflect the principles we see in verses 17 to 18? Does it honour them? Does it communicate what we would want it, want it to about our theology and the value we place on the work they're doing? And um, should we be offering financial support to elders who aren't staff members to one of them? And um, there's some more specific questions here which have particularly come out of our um, discussions if we, look, if we look to appoint an assistant pastor. Um, to what extent do we have paid roles and find a person to fit them? Or do we create paid roles around people we already have or particular needs at particular times? To what extent do we set the pay grade by the position and to what extent by the person? To what degree do we take into account their living expenses, accommodation costs, family situation as we set salaries? What should our policy be on holiday, sabbaticals, expenses, training? I think I've realised, um, asking some of those questions, that I tend to come to them thinking, what would be fair? What would be reasonable? I suspect I might get a different answer if I asked instead, what would be honouring? I certainly don't think the answer is just throw more money at staff. But I think questions that we need to take responsibility for just considering as a whole church, uh, rather than having it all on John Langley's shoulders. And one final question that I think we will need to ask longer term as a church. Um, with the spiralling costs of living in Oxford, what are we going to do about accommodating staff? Um, do we invest in poverty and drop salaries and accommodate them? Or do we increase salaries quite a bit? To, um, to afford the commercial rents and mortgages in the streets around here. I think that's one we're going to have to weigh up over the years to come. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Paul says in verse 17. So whatever we decide on those wisdom issues, let's make sure we're honouring our leaders. So elders should be honoured, but there is a condition. Elders must be honoured without favouritism. They should be honoured impartially. Verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. We're not sure what these accusations were for, whether they were for poor leadership or for wrong teaching. But Paul urges Timothy, he must not listen to these accusations. He must not listen to these accusations unless there is evidence. And using the principle of Deuteronomy 19 and that Jesus himself taught in Matthew 18, Timothy should only follow through on accusations of sin where there is clear evidence of wrongdoing. Without such witnesses, he mustn't even entertain the idea. But if the sin is proven, if there are witnesses, then verse 20, those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone 
so that others might take warning. Whilst Timothy is not to be impulsive in disciplining elders, he absolutely must discipline elders where sin is proven. Paul states it very clearly. He must discipline elders where sin is proven. And reprove here simply means rebuke, expose, refute, reprimand, censure. We aren't told the severity of the rebuke or its consequence, whether it led to removal from the leadership position, we don't know, or even from the church, we don't know. But from verse 21, the stakes seem to be fairly high. Why must sinning elders be disciplined? For the sake of others. Verse 20. For the sake of others. For the other elders and for the rest of the church. The reproving is to be done before everyone. How could the rest of the church possibly be benefited by this public exposure of sin, we might think? This washing of dirty laundry in public. Surely, surely this is better done behind closed doors in private. But it is to happen before everyone, Paul says, so that the others might take warning. The church must see this discipline occur so that they may see the seriousness of sin, see how seriously God takes sin and be warned to flee from it, almost literally be scared off. Like the child who sees their sibling's hand get bitten by the stray dog, they reached out to stroke and they quickly pull their hand away in fear. The church must see sinful elders be disciplined, that they stand in fear, as the ESV puts it. And to underline how important it is that Timothy keeps this command properly, Paul calls an audience before him in verse 21. I charge you, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism. Like the surgeon and performing a pioneering new technique with not only our bosses watching, but top-class surgeons from around the globe watching via video link. And Paul calls a pretty significant audience before Timothy in verse 21. So Timothy is to reprove elders persisting in sin before the audience of the whole church. And he's to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism before an audience of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Basically the whole of heaven. That's a pretty big audience, Timothy. There's a lot of people watching to check you do this. This is a big deal. Why such an emphasis, Paul? Well, I think because Paul can see how easy it would have been for Timothy to have shown partiality. It would have been easy for him to show partiality positively. I mean, who wants to call out sin, especially in elders and leaders? Surely it would have been far easier for Timothy to turn a blind eye to the sin of the elders around him, to play the long game, to tell himself that everyone's a work in progress and that no one's perfect. And you can just imagine him thinking of the effect it would have on the church. They'd already been battered with um, the departure of Hymenaeus and Alexander in chapter 1. The last thing they needed was more leaders, dirty linen being washed in public. Surely better to do it privately, or not at all. And it would have been easy for Timothy to show partiality negatively. 
There may well, well have been some elders around, good guys, no doubt, but just not quite the right fit, just not quite doing things the right way, rubbing people up, not team players. Might have been tempted to um, put down a personality clash to an issue of godliness, to assume the problem was with them and not with him. And it certainly would have been tempting for Timothy to heed the voices around him, saying that certain people needed to go, without Timothy showing too much discernment there. It would have been easy for Timothy to show partiality. And so Paul warns him, in the sight of God, that he must not show a whiff of favouritism. Do not share in the sins of others. Verse 22. Keep yourself pure. You're bothered about your personal purity, Timothy. Not drinking wine, just water. Be more concerned about your moral purity. For the sins of others. That's some in verse 24 are obvious. Reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, the sins of others trail behind. And it's the same is true of good deeds, verse 25. So don't be hasty, verse 22, in the laying on of hands. Don't rush to get rid of people, and don't rush to appoint new ones, Timothy. Wait, look carefully, see what sort of men these men are. For some leaders, sins and or good deeds will be very obvious to you, obvious to all. For others, you might have to wait a little longer to see. And some you might not be able to spot at all. So don't rush ahead, based on what others are telling you. Slow down. Don't be tempted to just go with the flow with what everyone else is saying about these people. I charge you, keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favouritism. As we considered earlier, how we can better honour our leaders. Uh, but just as Paul said in last week's passage, the widows were not all always to be honoured. So we see here, elders are not all always to be honoured. And I think we can assume this is, I think, the only place in the Bible that talks about disciplining elders, or in the epistles anyway. I think we can assume that this is not commonly to be done. And certainly when we read what Paul recommends in verse 20, the public exposure and rebuke of the faults of a leader, it's so far removed, so unfamiliar in our, most of our experience of church that, that we don't know what to do with it. And some of us may have had bad experiences of church discipline or seen things done badly in the lives of loved ones. But I think we have to accept, even if we're not sure how, from this passage, that sometimes elders should not be honoured. Sometimes it's good and right to dishonour a leader. Sometimes it's necessary for the leaders of a church to publicly rebuke another leader for their sin. You see, I think the problem with sin in leaders, um, if it's dealt with at all, being dealt with behind closed doors, in private, for the sake of a vulnerable congregation, for the sake of the reputation of a church, for the sake of the gospel work, as a kindness to the leader involved, is that others don't get to take warning. Verse 20. They don't see that there's a big sin issue here. And that can lead to the sin not so much being dealt with, it's being contained, for want of a better word. Until further down the line, there's a resignation, or someone stood down from a position of significant leadership. Or there's a much greater fall into sin from the leader who wasn't disciplined well. Or they move to a new position, and there's a big blow-up in their new position. All the sin in that one leader becomes a pattern of sin, a culture of sin in those around them. And before we know it, 
the amount of spiritual, emotional, mental, and even physical harm that has been done by this sinful leader and by the failure of his church to deal with his sin and the tragic impact that's had upon gospel work, upon the reputation of the church, and upon the name of God himself is awful. There might be some here tonight even who suffered at the hands of leaders who should have been disciplined, but weren't. And if you chapter down or why afterwards, if, um, that would be a help. Sometimes it's good, right, necessary for a church to dishonour a leader, to publicly rebuke another leader for their sin, so that others might take warning. Verse 20. A second and possible application now of this command to honour elders impartially. Um, the habit of honouring may have fallen out of fashion um, and been replaced by, by a sort of more cynical, anti-authoritarian stance. But slinking at the end in a track, I think we also, perhaps paradoxically, as a society, have grown even more prone to hero worship. Uh, we might be reluctant to honour leaders in general, but when we find the right leader the leaders to whom we can subscribe and agree, we idolise and almost worship them. Think of the, uh, the Greta Thunbergs, the Bernie Sanders, the Marie Kondos. And I think we get that in church too. We choose our tribe, our church, our denomination, our, our brand of Christian author and speaker or musician, the YouTube channel we like to watch, the Christian publisher we like to get the books of, the organisations we're on the mailing list for or give to. And we stick, with them to utter, uh, we stick to them with utter loyalty. We treat them as if they could do no wrong. We read their words more than we read the Bible's words. We listen to their talks more than we listen to our own pastor's talks. And they're so far above us, these groups and the um, unknown individuals who lead them, I mean, in their knowledge of the Bible, their godliness, their commitment to Christ, their willingness to sacrifice all for the gospel, the impact they're having for the kingdom. Or so we think. Because what do we actually know of their words, their actions, their lives, other than what others tell us, and what they choose to share with us themselves? Often we've simply jumped on the bandwagon of the opinion of others, as Timothy was tempted to do. And we've forgotten that they're just ordinary sinners who were saved by grace. And sometimes, uh, what is, what's even worse, is that in our adoration and our worship, they also forget that they're just ordinary sinners who were saved by grace. And they begin to, begin to believe their own hype. And before we know it, they're untouchable, uncriticisable, indispensable for God and his work in this world. No one would ever put it like that. But that's essentially what they've become. And that's not a place that any human being should be. But we can, as Christians, be hero worshippers because we do have a hero to worship. But it's no human person. It's Jesus Christ. Two amazing things about Jesus that I think uh, we need to remember as we read the end of 1 Timothy 5. Number one, Jesus is worthy of all honour. Revelation 5, verse 12. With 10,000 times 10,000 angels sing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. 
Jesus is thoroughly worthy of honour. We don't need to do any weighing up, any considering whether we're being impartial when we come to him. We can simply give him all the honour, all the praise, all the worship we can muster because he deserves it and infinitely more. Why? Well, because he's our lamb. The angels sing our Passover lamb who bore God's wrath for our sin so that we might be forgiven. Jesus is worthy of all honour. Number two, Jesus is the head of the church. No human being, however great, however godly, however gifted, however powerful they may, may be, is ultimately in charge of the church. Jesus is its head. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is the head of the church. And that means we don't have to put all our eggs into the basket of earthly leaders. Yes, we still want to have good leaders and to follow closely and trust the good, godly, earthly leaders that God gives us as they direct the affairs of the church well and labour in preaching and teaching. And we absolutely want to be reading Christian books, listening to music, uh, following people online. But we can remember that even the best of them are only under-shepherds, just looking after the flock for a time, in little ways, underneath their master, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And it means that we can be confident, even when leaders sin, that Christ will still build his church. I'll build my church, Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus will build his church. No matter what may appear to happen in it, no matter how deep a sin its leaders may fall into and the huge repercussions that may come out of that, Jesus will build his church. What a relief that is as we serve under weak, broken, sinful leaders, as we see leaders fall into sin or fall out of grace. The church isn't built by John Pipers, Tim Kellers, Tim Chesters, Jonathan Fletchers, or even by John Calvin's, by Martin Luther's, by Apostle Paul's. It's built by Jesus. And we can have utter confidence in him that he will finish the good work he has begun for the sake of his glory. So Paul's first command here is to honour elders who serve well under Christ without showing favouritism. And secondly, and much more briefly, Paul tells slaves that they must honour their masters all the more because they're Christian. They must honour their masters all the more because they're Christian. It seems likely by Paul's strong words in verse 1 and the high stakes once again uh, that there was an assumption among the slaves who come to join them that their ties to their earthly masters perhaps weren't as strong, um, especially if their masters were also believers. They, They had a higher calling now, a better authority as servants of God. Paul's instruction, verse 1. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Well, Paul hardly tells them to forget about their earthly masters because they serve God now. If anything, it's closer to the opposite. Consider their earthly masters worthy of full respect, not less respect, now that you're a Christian, he says. 
<coughs> so far from the gospel releasing slaves from their obligations to their earthly masters, Saul put it, saw it as putting them under even greater obligations to their early masters. Not, not that he's um, advocating the advancement of slavery here. I, I think he's just t- talking to a group of believers in the church, in the station of life in which they are in. Um, and why must they respect their masters all the more? Well, because of the consequence if they don't. So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. What these slaves may see is celebrating their freedom in Christ. The rest of society will most likely see as subordination, disruptiveness. And they'll put the blame on the church. And they'll put the blame on God. So Paul exhorts these slaves as Christians not to do anything that could result in the Christian faith being spoken badly of. So they must respect their masters. For if they don't, they'll bring God's very identity into disrepute. And if their masters are Christian too, surely in that, in that situation at least, the relationship should be different because they're brothers in Christ now. Well, verse 2. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them, fellow believers, and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. If their masters are Christians, they should serve them even better because they are brothers. Their masters being their brothers means they serve them all the more, not less, because they love them, because God loves them because they want good for their masters and their masters want good for them I don't think if I'd been a slave in the Ephesian church that would be what I wanted to hear at that point in time not forget about your earthly masters your boss is in heaven now but honour your masters all the more because you're a Christian now we don't want to draw too close a line between servant master and employee employer but I think there are some principles that we can draw out here from how we ought to regard those we work under. And the headline, we must honour them. Believer or not, wise or unwise, good boss or bad boss, we must honour those we work under. Um, other passages addressed to slaves go into more detail on the nature of, of that relationship from a theological perspective. But from Paul's words here, I think all we can say is that we must honour them for the sake of the reputation of God and of our teaching. And surely Paul puts these passages side by side to show that we should honour them in, in some of the ways that we should honour our elders. Respect, public recognition, and thanks. And we should serve them. But let us just briefly again look at Jesus here. And let's see his extraordinary example in this area. Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. He says to his disciples, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the head of the church, the head of everything. As we read in Colossians 2, 
Jesus could have claimed all authority, all respect, all honour, all obedience. It would have been due to him. He came to serve. He didn't feel the need to enforce his status, to claim his freedom, to make clear his position, to advance his reputation. Instead, he served. Why? Because he had come to give his life as a ransom for us. So let's remember that and follow his example as we honour our leaders and pastors.